You're listening to Father Kirby Longo's Homilies, powered by Mountain Catholic. Father Kirby is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena and pastor of Christ the King University Parish in Missoula, Montana. If we consider the full picture of Jesus' public ministry kind of from outside as spectators, then our gospel today would appear as sort of climax or the confrontation or the sort of turning point of his ministry. That he has made a firm decision that his time has come to act. And for the apostles, they don't quite know what that means yet. As Luke says so often, which is a beautiful phrase, that he has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. And his journey to Jerusalem has always been representative of his journey to death. From the moment of this miracle, Jesus couldn't continue to live. That no religious power nor any government can condemn a man or stand against a man who's raising people from the dead. They can't let him continue on and yet still speak out against him. Because the raising of someone from the dead just changes the whole order of things. It throws everything on its head. And Jesus is a contradiction to them. And so we already see in this next chapter, following the one we just read, that there's plots both to kill Jesus and to kill Lazarus, who stands as a witness to everything that Jesus has been doing. But let's back up, because I think the story itself is, is really the good part. So first we hear that Lazarus is sick. And we hear over and over throughout this chapter that Jesus loves Lazarus. He loves Mary. He loves Martha. They were some of his closest friends. And we know from sort of their actual house and property that, that we know exactly where it is, that they were, they were fairly wealthy and that their house was one of the earliest sort of house churches in the Christian church. So it was fairly large and, and well put together and, and served as the sort of base camp for the apostles. All this to say that Lazarus being sick is, is big news. He's a close friend and very well connected amongst those who are following in the way. And yet, Jesus waits two days. And when he finally arrives, Lazarus has been dead for four days, and this heavy sorrow has invaded all of the family and friends there. Probably more so because Jesus was such a close friend that they they were kind of expecting something and it didn't happen. And so that sort of doubles their sorrow almost. You know, Mary and Martha, who are maybe of a different mind and a different temperament, are of one mind in their sadness and disappointment in Christ. They both say, Lord, if you had been here, if only you had been here, our brother would not have died. And so what happens next, the way that Jesus reacts to this scene is, I guess, depending on our spiritual tendencies, we can have one or two react, one of two reactions. You know, if we're, if we're someone who's strong in empathy and re- a really sort of compassionate person, then we'll find ourselves deeply moved and comforted by Jesus in, in this moment. Because he looks upon the scene and he becomes, he became perturbed and deeply troubled. It says perturbed twice and deeply troubled. And then finally, we hear the shortest verse in the scriptures, Jesus wept. What a mysterious thing to contemplate. And and not mysterious for superficial reasons. It's not 
surprising that someone would weep at the death of their friend. That's, we should hopefully weep at the death of our friend. But that's not the reason that Jesus is weeping, because he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So that can't be the reason. John Henry Newman really flushes this out, I think in a beautiful way. He says that Jesus comes upon this scene and he, he saw visibly displayed the victory of death, a mourning multitude. So he comes, he comes to this moment and sees in this visceral way. As a man, he kind of experiences this, maybe for the first time, that what sin and death have done to humanity the way it's twisted us, the way it's sort of undermined everything about who we are as human beings. So how could this reaction of Jesus then be anything but comforting to us? How, how, how is it, you know, how could anyone see it, see this and be disturbed by the way Jesus is reacting? Well, because he's God. If he's God, how can God be sad? You know what I mean? That, Can he not comprehend his own plan? Does he not see that he wins the ultimate victory, that that he brings just judgment to everyone, that all the mourning will be comforted? So can this sentiment be possibly real? Is he just doing this for us so that we are comforted by his? So is he putting on a show is the question. And then also, how can we reconcile this mourning of Jesus, this weeping, with you know, the story of the ten virgins. The ten virgins go. Five forget their oil, and they come back later, and they knock on the door, and Jesus answers, Truly, I do not know you. Or on the Sermon on the Mount, when he tells his disciples, you know, enter by the narrow gate. The, the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction. Many walk it. The gate is narrow and difficult that leads to life. Few walk it. How can we reconcile those two moments in Jesus' life with one another? You know, some of us want a just God. Some of us want a merciful God. The idea of one that's both is just incomprehensible to us because we don't really perfectly understand either mercy or justice. You know, regarding, in a sense, Jesus weeping, the suffering of Jesus. I was reading Benedict a while ago, and he brought up this passage that I'd never seen in St. Bernard of Clairvaux. He says this, in Latin, it's, it's a great sort of turn of phrase. It's impossibilis as Deus, sed non incompassibilis. It's God cannot suffer, but he can suffer with. So, of course, he's God. He's perfect. He can't suffer. There's no lacking in him. And yet, he can suffer with us. And I guess that's, that's you could say, the reason why he came. That's the whole purpose of the incarnation, that his love for us was such that he who could not suffer himself availed himself to suffering for us, and not as, not in a weird way, but so that we wouldn't suffer eternally. And yet, and yet the mystery goes further than this, and I think this is where it hits us in a real way. You know, that's all sort of beautiful theology, you could say, but what does it mean in our actual lives. So as as we come to the end of Lent, we really begin to meditate on what it means for God to suffer. And we also meditate on it, not as as masochists, but as disciples, hoping that we can do something with what we learn here. What does a disciple do? 
follows after his or her master, wherever they go. And we're specifically called, as Christians, to follow after Christ to the cross. And so one of the great mysteries of life is that God allows us to suffer in order that others can be saved. Lazarus didn't have to die. Jesus had the option. He could have just gone and healed him. And yet, he waited two days. It says that he waited two days. He could have come two days earlier. So he let his friend, the one whom he loved, suffer and die. This Suffer a great ordeal. Understand this. Lazarus died, and then he's raised from the dead, and he has to die again. Like, who wants to do that? You know, like, who wants to die twice? Dying once is hard enough, you know? And it's not like Lazarus agreed to any of this. It's not like Jesus went over a couple days before and was like, look, Lazarus, I know you're going to get sick. Let me just give you this plan. It's going to be great. Tons of people are going to come to believe in me. And Lazarus is like, okay, dude, we can pull this off, you know? That's, that's not how that worked. Lazarus had no idea this was coming. And, and yet, why afterwards does, it, does Lazarus not just hate Jesus for letting him go through this? Because he knows it's coming again. He's no, he knows it's not the final resurrection for him. This is a temporary thing. And yet, he's at dinner with Jesus the next day. Because he knew that he loved him. And so did Martha and Mary, right in the midst of it. And that's why they could say, even before Lazarus was raised from the dead, Martha says, even now, I know that whatever you ask will be given to you. And Jesus asked her, do you believe? Do you believe that I am the Christ? And she says, yes, Lord, I have come to believe. So what God is asking of us is no small thing. He's asked that we trust him, that all of our suffering, that everything that we endure, whether it's the malice of another person or whether it's just sort of natural suffering that comes at any point during our life or the sorrow of the death of those that we love or any of that, we have to trust that in everything, if he allows it, he will be glorified in it. And that he allows it because he loves us. That's a hard thing to believe. And also, we just have to trust, even though he's not going to give us the full picture, he's never going to let us know everything. And we actually have to trust that that in itself is good for us. So in moments like these, it's often the case, you know that one of my favorite stories of healing in the scriptures is the man who, you know, his son is, his son is, Convulsing and he's and he's possessed. He's obviously got some sort of physical ailment too. And the Lord says, you know, do you want me to heal your son? He says, yes, Lord. Uh, you know, do whatever you can. And he's like, do you believe that I can do it? And he says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. So in these moments, we just relate to Him in that. And as we continue to meditate on the cross, as we come closer to this Easter season, we just ask the Lord for deeper and deeper insight into what that actually means. First, we look at his willingness to do it himself. And then we love him despite and right in the midst of all of that in our own lives.